Hacksaw Ridge. So nobody here is familiar with it except a couple of people. I'm going to just read you something because it will be a good way to sort of lay it out for you uh, rather than me trying to tell you the story. It's uh, from People Magazine. And uh, just a quick summary here. of It's a movie based off of the real-life individual Desmond Doss. Let me just read this to you. Private Desmond Doss walked into the bloodiest battle of World War II, Pacific's Theater, with nothing to protect himself save for his Bible and his faith in God. He was a devout Seventh-day Adventist. Let me pause there for a second now. I know not everybody believes that Seventh-day Adventists can be saved. They've got some theology that doesn't necessarily align with ours, but much like others, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be saved. I mean, I grew up in a Catholic church, which has different theology than us, and I know saved Catholics um, in spite of their theology. And so I don't know specifically, but he was a man who considered himself a believer. He claims to have placed his faith in Jesus Christ, but we'll kind of leave that discussion aside, just assume that he was saved. Um, But it says... He was a devout Seventh-day Adventist and conscientious objector. Doss had enlisted as a medic and refused to carry a rifle. The fighting took place on the hellish Medea encampment in April 1945. The battlefield, located on the top of a sheer 400-foot cliff, was fortified with a deadly network of Japanese machine gun nests and bloody traps. The encampment, nicknamed Hacksaw Ridge for the treacherous steep cliff, was key to winning the Battle of Okinawa. The mission was thought to be a near impossible one, and when Doss's battalion was ordered to retreat from the top of that cliff, the medic refused to leave his fallen comrades behind. And so ultimately his battalion left, and he stayed up there. Heavy machine gun, or I'm sorry, uh, facing heavy machine gun and artillery fire, Doss repeatedly ran alone into the kill zone, carrying wounded soldiers to the edge of the cliff and single-handedly lowering them down to safety. Each time he saved a man's life, Doss prayed out loud, Lord, please help me get one more. By the end of that night, he had rescued an estimated 75 men. He was always modest. He claimed, well, maybe it was about 50, but the fellow soldiers there gauged that it was closer to 100 soldiers that he had saved, so they split the difference. The unbelievable story has come to life in the Mel Gibson movie called Hacksaw Ridge. It's a hard movie to watch just because it's a war movie. There's a lot of killing, especially when you see they do their best job of depicting what it was really like for those soldiers. They figure, I think it was something like 12,000 soldiers died in the Battle of Okinawa on our side. It was bloody, but if you imagine this, this is a 400-foot cliff. All the Japanese are encamped up there in machine gun turrets, and there's barbed wire and everything else. And so you're climbing up this cliff, and you're coming over, and they're shooting at you. And you're trying to take that ridge. And it was something, I believe, if I remember, I think it was like a three-month battle or something. It just wasn't going to happen. And so... There he was, refusing to carry out. He was ridiculed by his other soldiers. He was mocked. He was threatened with, with all kinds of ill treatment and, and other things in the military because he's a soldier. He has to wear a weapon. And he just said, I can't. But he wanted to serve. The reason I bring this story up is I would imagine, you know, here he is, uh, faith in Christ, a devout Christian as they, as they claim, um, And there he is, all by himself on the top of that ridge against this fortified Japanese army that has taken out hundreds, maybe thousands of his own men. 
And when they retreat, he stays up there. Why? He's a medic. He can't leave his fallen soldiers who are now wounded out in the kill zone. They will either be killed or they're going to die out there. And yet, every time he went out, he says, Lord, help me get just one more. And he goes out there and the Lord protects him and he brings one more over, lowers him down the cliff. The movie depicts that. I mean, it just almost makes you weep. You know? Um, I, I thought of that only because as we're looking at this story today of Abraham, we have this story of Abraham where um, he goes up against some fairly formidable enemies who had come into the land and had taken a lot. And he goes out with this really small force of his own men against these established armies, these kings. And he just runs them out. All because God took care of him and gave him victory in that. And as I look at this, I can't help but think the only way Desmond Doss was able to do what he was able to do had to be because God was up there now. You could argue maybe he really isn't saved because he was a Seventh-day Adventist. That doesn't mean that God didn't use him. God apparently wanted those 75 or 100 men that he had rescued to go on living. And so God was obviously there. And God does that. God gives his people victory when it's according to his plan and his purpose. And we're going to see that today. But then there's this interesting little twist that happens at the end of our story today. And it has to do with what did Abraham do with that victory? How did he respond to that? And so we're going to see that today. So we're going to look at at this uh, story from uh, Genesis chapter 14 today. Let's start with verses uh, 1 through 12. I'm going to read those. And I'm just going to caption this section. There will always be forces at work to disrupt God's plans. Okay? There will always be forces at work to disrupt God's plans. Verses 1 through 14 of chapter, or verses 1 through 12 of chapter 14. And it came about, and I'm going to slaughter this, folks, just so you know, there are some names in here that if I survive reading this, um, it will be shocking, so I'm going to slaughter these names. Um, but just there, I was thinking about having Matt come up and read it to us in the Hebrew today because I'm thinking that that might almost be easier than trying to pronounce these names in the English. Okay? And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alasar, Chedolar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. Did I get that right, Matt? Is all right? All right. That they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedolomer, um, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year... Chedolo Lamor. Is that how you pronounce that? What is it? We'll call him Cheddar. There we go. And the kings that were with him came to defeat the Raphaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and in the Zumim, or uh, Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shabbath, Kairathayim. I think we got that. And the Horites in their Mount Seir, and as far as El Param, which is in the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Eshmaphat, or Pat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan, Tamar, and the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, again that is Zor, 
came out and they arrayed in battle against them in the city or in the valley of Siddim against Cheddar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, or Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Alright, you got all that? You know what's going on? As we learned back in chapters 12 and 13, God's plan was to make Abram into a great nation and to give the land of Canaan to his descendants. We learn that in this passage, however, there was a group of four very powerful Mesopotamian kings. They were from the east, and they controlled the land. Now, Mesopotamia was to the east of Canaan, and these four kings were collecting tribute from at least five kings that were in Canaan. Essentially, this is a forced form of financial payment to keep from being invaded. So these powerful, four powerful kings from Mesopotamia were subjugating these five kings in Canaan and demanding that they receive payment and tribute. Now, as you think about Solomon, that's how Solomon got much of his wealth. He was accepting tribute from all these other countries to keep the peace. And so that's what these kings were doing. They were subjugating these Canaanite kings. And for 13 years, these kings went ahead and did that. They continued to pay these Mesopotamian kings to keep the peace. But they finally got tired of doing that. They wanted to keep their own stuff. And so they decided, we're just not going to pay it anymore. What are you going to do about it? Well, these four kings decided to do something about it. So they came along the eastern side of the river there. They went along the eastern side of Canaan, and they conquered all of the cities along that route, destroyed those cities, or at least wiped away the kings and the leadership there. They attacked the major cities of the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the the Malachites, the Amorites, all of them along down there. They just marched all the way through. They continued down there along the bottom of that, did a slight U-turn and headed back up, went to the valley of Siddim, which is where they faced off against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They ultimately defeated them. They went back to Sodom and Gomorrah, ransacked the cities, took all the possessions, took the people, and then began to head up on the west side. So, in essence, they basically came down the Dead Sea, and that comes down through here. They basically came from Mesopotamia. They came down this side. Sodom and Gomorrah is down here. They wiped out all of these here. They came here. They went back to the bottom of the Dead Sea, and then came back up to the Valley of Siddim. Had a big battle there with these five kings, because they hadn't gotten to the five kings yet. They came all the way down. The five kings met them in the valley here. Basically, wiped them out. Some of them were killed probably, some of them fled. Then they went back down, went over to Sodom and Gomorrah, came back down around, went all the way back up this side, and they were going to head back to Mesopotamia. Okay? What we see in this story is ultimately two competing and incompatible plans. And what I mean by that is, on the one hand, we have God's plan, which is the land is ultimately going to be given to Abraham and his descendants. This will be all of Israel. Israel will control this land. But you have these other kings that are over in the Mesopotamian area. Their plan is, no, we own this land, we control this land, it's ours. So you have these two incompatible plans that are competing one against the other. It's interesting because that's exactly what we see just period in life, is it not? There are two competing plans in this world. There's God's plan and purpose, and then there's man's plan and purpose. Or, if you really want to get serious, the enemy's 
plan and purpose. Okay? So what's our takeaway? I would say that if we look at this from a theological perspective, we see that there will always be forces working against God's plan. Always. That's just the nature of it. We see that start all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? Immediately, within the first couple of days at least, of creating Adam and Eve, what happens? The enemy's already in there, trying to circumvent God's plan. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible, what do you see in the book of Revelation? Ultimately, you still see, in the final battle, trying to circumvent God's plan. Now, we know the end of the story. Jesus finally has enough. Basically, wipes them out. Throws God's enemies into the abyss. Or, I'm sorry, into the lake of fire. And it's all dealt with. Right? So, from the first pages of the Bible to the last pages of the Bible, what we see is that there are always forces trying to circumvent God's plan. And in the middle of that, what do we see? We constantly see that throughout the Old Testament where there are always these enemies trying to circumvent God's plan for Israel in, the, in their area, right? We get to the New Testament and what do we see? We see the enemy at work. One of the first things he does with Jesus is what? Takes him out. Let me show you all this. All this can be yours. What is he trying to do there? He's trying to circumvent God's plan to send Jesus to the cross. doesn't want God to establish his kingdom, but rather my kingdom. What do we see in the book of Acts? We see the enemy trying to defeat the church. We see the battles there, right? Through little things, maybe not so obvious, but the stoning of Stephen, the persecution of Paul, the constant pursuit by by the Jews that would come behind Paul and try to circumvent the gospel. We constantly see that throughout the Old and the New Testament. Do we see that today? Absolutely. And so there will always be these forces that are working against God's plans. The Bible actually even warns us about that. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. He warns his readers, be, uh, be, a, I'm sorry, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls, or, prowls around like a roaring lion. Doing what? Seeking someone to devour. The enemy is indeed after us. He says, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So he says, Peter, or I'm sorry, he says to his readers, look out for Satan, be on alert. This is normal behavior for your brothers and sisters all over the world. Meaning, Satan is trying to devour God's people. Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Submit therefore to God. Do do what? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay? Resist the devil. We wouldn't have to resist him if he wasn't out to get us, if he wasn't out after us. Remember what Jesus told Peter. The enemy is asked to sift him like wheat. I won't have you turn here, but Ephesians chapter 4, Paul teaches us about putting on the spiritual armor of God. Why? Because there are forces out there that are trying to circumvent God's purposes and plans. And right now, his largest um, focus, if you will, or, or where the enemy is focusing his energy, is on the church. Why? Because that is God's plan and purpose. And so he is out to destroy God's people Destroy God's church. That's the way it works. So our first takeaway is 
simply that, a theological principle, that there are forces that are trying to circumvent God's plans, God's purposes. Now, there's good news. That's our second point. That's that God grants victory over those forces who seek to circumvent his plans. Look at verses 13 through 16 of chapter 14. So after they had taken Lot, Abram's nephew, and all the possessions, and they had departed these kings, they were now coming again back up around on the west side of the sea. And it says in verse 13, Then a fugitive, somebody who likely escaped one of those cities that had been attacked by these kings, Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, now he was living in the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's in the north. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them. And he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So Abraham is living in Canaan near these oaks of Mamre. Remember that was probably a Canaanite holy site. He had built a temple there. That's in central Canaan. It's due west of the Dead Sea, about 10 miles from Bethlehem. You notice here that Abram's referred to as the Hebrew. That's the first time. Nobody really knows um, what the etymology of that word is. Some believe it's a derivative of the word Eber, the great-grandson of Shem. But we really don't know. Um, but it's interesting. For the first time, he's called a Hebrew here. We actually start to find that in some um, ancient archaeological digs. And that's how we can prove that Israel was actually in the land of Egypt because, because they see this word for Hebrew and some stellas and other things. So it's kind of interesting here. Just a little tidbit there. Um, don't know what the significance of it is right there. Um, doesn't appear to be any specific significance. They think the word that uh, Hebrew might have come from uh, may refer to um, crossing over. And so it's possible that Abram was given the name Hebrew or the word Hebrew here because he had crossed over into the land of Canaan. Don't really know. But, so there he is, the Hebrew in the land of Canaan, and this fugitive comes to him and basically tells him what had happened. Told him these Mesopotamian kings, or Mesopotamian kings um, had come down, had conquered these cities, had conquered Sodom and Gomorrah, had taken Lot and all of his possessions and his people captive. So Abram takes 318, it says, of his own men. It refers to him here as trained men, which we're not really sure what that means. It could mean trained militarily, or it could simply mean that they were tried and trustworthy men. It's not real clear. But he takes these 318 men. It says that they were born in his house. Now, Abram hasn't had any kids yet. This is the phrase to basically any slaves or servants, workers, who had been born in his house. And so there were 318 of these. It doesn't tell us that these were all the men that were there. They were probably men of a certain age. But there's 318 of them. Now, this gives us kind of an idea of how big Abraham's household might have been at this time. If you think about these men as being maybe probably... You know, we would say here we don't generally send anyone to war unless they're 18 or older, right? That's kind of adulthood. So we just kind of work things out. There's probably anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people in Abram's household at this point, meaning 
servants and others. Now remember, we were told he was a wealthy man with a lot of possessions, um, including people and servants and other things. And so it's fairly significant here, but he takes these 318 men, which is nothing compared to the military forces he's about to face. Four kings from Mesopotamia, seasoned, brutal, military, and he's going to take 318 men from his own house and set out to go after these guys. So he begins the pursuit. Now there are three other men that join Abram. They're all brothers, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner. It says that they are allies of Abraham, which we don't know. It doesn't mention that they gave him any soldiers or that any men went with them. It's just that they were allies of his. So they go along with them. Um, They were likely probably lords or patriarchs over very large families, much like Abram. Abram wasn't a nation at this point. wasn't even a city. But a fairly large operation, I'll call it. Probably sheep and goats and other things. An enterprise, if you will. These men were probably a lot like Abram. They were not a trained military fighting machine. So they joined Abram in his pursuit. They go up and they actually... um, do a surprise attack on these kings in the evening, at night. And they ultimately defeat them and they send them with their tail behind their legs back home to Mesopotamia. So Abram and his small army pursue these kings. They go about 100 miles. Um, it's a pretty remarkable feat to be able to do this. It's a true underdog story, if you will. A ragtag group of trained men going up against these seasoned armies who had literally just wiped out at least five cities coming down. And you notice what's really interesting is that at least three of the groups that are mentioned in here that these kings defeated elsewhere in the scriptures are referred to as giants. Think about that for a moment. These kings come in and literally walk through these fortified cities have their way with them, even places that are described elsewhere as giants, and they just have their way. And Abram and his 318 men rout them elsewhere. We're told that it was because, and I think it's verse 20 or so, because the Lord had delivered them. We'll see that in verse 20. It wasn't Abraham's power and might in these men. It was the Lord's work through these guys that allowed them to rout these bigger, superior, more formidable enemies. Why? Because God gives victory to his people when there are those forces who try to circumvent his purpose and his plans. And God's plan was not for these Mesopotamian kings to control Canaan. This land was going to... Now, it wouldn't be for another 400 years, and we see what happened there. Joshua and his smaller army marches in and defeats armies that are significantly bigger than him. In fact, there's a pattern in the scriptures of this kind of stuff. Remember Judges 7, Gideon and his 300 soldiers surrounded the Midianite camp. And they kind of defeated them by causing confusion. They basically are smashing jars and lamps and everything else. And God sends them all into a frenzy and Gideon and 300 men defeat a superior army. We've got Exodus chapter 17 after the Amalekites attacked Israel. Joshua defeated that army um, while Moses held up his arms. Again, God doing the work. Joshua 6, when Israel defeated the city of Jericho after marching around the city and the walls collapsing. A much bigger, more formidable army. Joshua chapter 10, when the five southern Canaanite kings attacked the Gibeonites, 
whom Israel had made a vow to protect, God rained down large hailstones from heaven, helped Joshua and Israel defeat the Canaanite kings, again, much bigger, more formidable enemy. Joshua 15 and 16, Samson killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. I take that literally. Some people say, oh, I couldn't. No, that's what it says. Why? How could, was it Samson just happened to, you know, he worked out a lot, right? He's like Arnold, you know? No. God was with him. In fact, even at the end of his life, as Samson was bound between pillars, and what does he do? Basically pushes the pillars, prays to God at that moment. And it says that it brought down and crushed the army of the Philistines. Wiped them out. How? God. 1 Samuel 17, David killed the giant Goliath with a sling and a stone. Think about that. Big guy. I was watching this video the other day about, you know, is there really any evidence that giants ever really existed? The scriptures describe them. There are many people. We see that in, with uh, the Nephilim. We see that as well in other parts of the Old Testament where these, the Rephaim and others are referred to as giants. And there's just a lot of debate on there. Were they really giants, you know? And um, there's very little archaeological evidence of extra-large humans, if you will. But there's just not a whole lot of archaeological evidence of dead humans anyway. You know, we, we have some, um, but for the most part, um, there's controversy and questions about it. But yet, there is archaeological evidence of, um, like, other things that seem to suggest. And one of them was a find um, where these spears have been found um, in the ancient Near East that are absolutely huge. And some of them match the dimensions of what's described with, um, with uh, Goliath. But what people have done as I've said, oh, those are just decorative. But when you look at them, they would make formidable weapons, but God forbid, Dustin couldn't hold it. You know, he's too small. You know, I couldn't hold it. I don't even know if Matt could hold it. These things are huge, and when you scale them up, you kind of go, maybe this is evidence. And in fact, along with one of the finds, there was a mesh, there's some mesh armor that was found. And when it's assembled, it's massive. It would... There's not a human alive today that could wear it. And again, oh, it was just decorative. Okay? I don't know. But my point in all of this is that there's evidence throughout the scriptures of God working with his people to defeat very formidable enemies that were ultimately fighting against God's purpose and plans. And in those instances, God gave victory to them. He wasn't a willing to allow his plans to be thwarted. It, it, it wasn't as if God has to just kind of go, well, dude, that didn't work out. I have to change my plan and do something else now. You know, God's not reactionary in that way. So what's our takeaway with this? Um, we see over and over in the Bible that God grants his people victory over the wicked forces that try to circumvent his plan. But I want you to notice something. I notice I said his plans, not our plans. Some people conflate the two. You know, there's a whole entire movement. In fact, I sent... Matt and Dustin a link this morning to a, another NAR. You've heard me talk about the New Apostolic Reformation. There's an awful lot of talk about God granting the victory within those circles. And what they mean by that is, you know, I can accomplish anything because I'm a Christian and God will make me a millionaire and God will, you know, build my business and God will do all this because all the enemies of God are against me and they really focus on the here and now. 
Now, that's not what this particular conference was about, but that whole movement is all about that. In fact, I've got a friend of mine um, who's part of that, and that word victory comes up all the time, you know, and it's what they're really talking about. It's victory in this life, and it's always tied to wealth and prominence and possessions and, and everything else. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about when forces come up against God's purposes and plans, He uses His people, oftentimes, to circumvent those plans. And he gives them the victory in that. God had plans for Abram in the land of Canaan, and when these kings of Mesopotamia tried to march in and circumvent those plans, God said, no, in a small way. Because again, his plan wasn't to give the land immediately right then and there to Abram. But this is a good picture of if God could wipe out these enemies that wanted to control the land with Abraham and 318 men, it's pretty clear what God's thoughts were regarding their plans. No, my plans are different than yours. This land will be given to Abram and his descendants. You know, in some respects, and I have to be careful here, this is true of us believers in Christ. Um, There are many times in our own lives where God's enemies come up against us, and God has plans for us. And we get all worried and concerned because God's enemy is coming after us. And we freak out, we get worried, and we fear. You know, if, if God ultimately has a plan and a purpose for us, He'll give us victory in that area. I believe that wholeheartedly. And that's not a Pentecostal charismatic thing. You know, I think about my own life going to seminary. Um, I didn't have the funds to go. And yet, it was interesting how every single semester I could have fretted and said, I don't have the money to pay the tuition next semester. But every semester, God provided literally exactly what I needed to the dollar. It's shocking. And the only time I ever received anything more than what I needed, it was a hundred bucks. And God brought somebody to me at church that needed a hundred bucks to finish her fundraising for a mission trip. She was defeated. The enemy had come up against her, stolen all of their funds to go on a missionary trip. But God said, no, I want her in wherever country it was. And he provided a means to do that. Defeated the enemy's purpose and plan of keeping her from being able to be there or from keeping me out of seminary. We don't have to worry or fret. Even when we don't have the resources or the army or the strength or the power to do what we think needs to happen. Isn't this really true of the church too, when you think about it? Um, Jesus declared that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Do we believe that? We look around the United States sometimes and we see the lack of influence we have and attendance dropping significantly and there are more churches every year that close than are built. The number of people that are not going to church now on on any basis um, continues to drop. Um, I read, an, I read uh, some survey information and some articles just in the last two weeks here that talk about in the last 20 years how the opinion of the world towards the church has changed drastically. It used to be um, out of the most trusted and respected institutions in America, the church came in in the top two or three just 20 years ago. Now they're saying it ranks 26th, 27th, 28th. The church is losing its influence here in the United States. But yet... Jesus declared he would build his church. Okay? Maybe what he's doing is purifying and cleaning house. I don't know. But if you look around the world instead of just here in America, what do we see? The Christian faith is still the fastest growing faith in the world through what? Not birth. That's Islam. That's the fastest growing religion, but through birth. They have a lot of babies. But through conversion... Jesus Christ is still building his church at a massive pace. 
all over the world and in some of the most difficult places in the world. Why? God says, I'm going to use my church, my people, to build my church. And in places where the enemy is trying to crush believers, God's giving them victory. Preaching the gospel like they should be. Why? Because he said, I will build my church. He made us part of that mission, which means that we will have victory in that area. Maybe not as individuals always, but as a body, we will. We saw that throughout our study in the book of Acts, did we not? This little group of 12 men, 11 men, all stuck up in a room wondering what's going to happen next. Maybe 500 other disciples, probably all scattered, wondering what to do next. And look what they did. Why? Enemy's plan was to destroy Christ and to destroy those group of individuals. Every one of the apostles, except for John, was killed. We have Stephen being murdered very early in the book of Acts. Satan trying to say, this is not going to happen. It's not going to work out this way. I'm not going to let you get away with it. They had Paul trying to destroy the church. What does Jesus do? Uh Uh-uh. Why? He gave the church the victory that he promised. And so... In many respects, I kind of look at that and I think that's really ought to be where our focus is. And so we shouldn't be so concerned about our own little individual earthly victories here. That's not what God is about. He sometimes gives us those things. Victory over our enemies just here on earth. But really the issue is his purpose and his plan from a spiritual perspective. And that's where the majority of the promises lie. In fact, Romans chapter 8 tells us that. Romans chapter 8, turn there with me if you will. Romans chapter 8. Oops. Jump down to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to what? The will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, what? To those who love God, what? To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among His brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? In other words, if God would do all these things... It doesn't matter who's against us. Why? Because God is for us. I've always thought to myself, if God would send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me, what will he not do for me when it's according to his plan and purpose? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And he's not talking about possessions there. This is all spiritual Go to Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see the things he's talking about there. All the things that God has done for us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake... We are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, but in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now again, he's talking spiritual there. 
For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What this tells us is that God has a purpose and a plan and He will not allow that purpose and plan to be prevented by the enemy. And through all of that we have victory. And again, it's primarily spiritual here. That's where our focus ought to be. It's interesting, that's where the enemy's focus is. He doesn't want to just destroy a business here. He's more interested in destroying the soul behind that business. He doesn't want to just destroy a church. He wants to destroy the individuals that are part of that church. So, the good news is that we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about the enemy. We're told to resist the enemy. We're told to just stand firm in our faith. We're told to just stand strong and let him flee. Let him run away. Now, there's one last piece to this. I'm going to say it this way. In victory, when we receive that victory, when we recognize that we are victorious in Christ and that ultimately, whatever God's plan and purpose is for for us, we'll have victory in that. What do we do with that victory? In Abraham's case, he sought the blessings of God rather than the worldly spoils. So in victory, we should seek God's blessing, not worldly spoils. And you'll see how I'm going to tie this together here in a bit. But look at verses 17 through 24 of chapter 14. Then after his return from the defeat of Cheddar, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Whose victory was this? It was the Lord's victories. It wasn't Abram's. It was the Lord's. He gave him a tenth of all. Abram, that is, gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. For I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. So what do we see happen here? After the victory... The two kings from the land of Canaan here come, or two kings come and meet Abram. And I want to highlight three contrasts between these two individuals. You have the king of Sodom and you have King Melchizedek. And there's three things that I see here that I want to contrast. On the one hand, we have the king of Sodom. His name is Bera. He's one of the kings who fled the five Mesopotamian kings. He's the lucky one. Got away. But he lost his city, Sodom. So we look at these two individuals here, and the first contrast is that there is a difference in the character of these two kings. On the one hand, we have King Bear of Sodom. The first clue we get into his character is the name, which many commentaries, etc., believe is related to the Hebrew word ra, which means evil. What's interesting is the name of the king of Gomorrah is Bishra, appears to be related to the word for wickedness. <laughs> so we have evil and wickedness. You know, dumb and dumber, whatever you want to call them, you know, from Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's our first clue. King Bera also ruled over Sodom, and twice in chapter 13 we're given a glimpse into the, what kind of city it was, verse 13, or verse 10. Um, we find out that, um, let me see here, uh, chapter 13, verse 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of Jordan, and it was very well watered, etc. And it says, just a little note, 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know that God wasn't happy with Sodom and Gomorrah. That gives us our first clue as to what this city must have been like. But then, when we jump down into verse 13, we're told, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So this is not a good city. So we've got this king possibly named after, given the name, you know, evil. He's ruling over clearly a wicked city that God ultimately will destroy. Um... In Genesis chapters 18 and 19, we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction by God, and we're told that it was exceedingly grave sin in the city to the point where not even ten righteous people could be found. Think about that. These were huge cities. Abraham tries to, you know, well, what if you see 50? What if you see 40? And gets down to, you mean there's not even ten righteous people in this whole city? So this king ruled over that kind of a city. The sin of these two cities was significant. It was great. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah became bywords for evil and wickedness. So we have a king ruling over that. That's who he is. That's his character. On the other hand, we have King Melchizedek. He was the king of Salem, which is thought to be Jerusalem. There's some debate as to the meaning of his name, but it likely means king of righteousness or my king is just. Total opposite of the king of Sodom. He's also referred to here as a priest of God Most High, which means that he served and worshipped God as a priest. He existed before the Levitical priesthood. There were those in the ancient Near East before God called Abram that worshipped the Lord. He was known. This is one of them. We know from Psalm 110 and Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 that he serves as a type of an example, a foreshadowing of Christ, who was also both king and high priest. We have this man here, Melchizedek. He was king, but he was also high priest. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. We could spend a whole day on just that today, but we won't. These two kings could not have been more different in their character and whom they are. One represented righteousness, the other one represented wickedness. That's going to play into something here in a second. The second contrast is the difference in what each king offered Abram. Do you see that they each offer him something? Um, Go back to verses 18 and 20. We're going to start with um, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of most high God. He blessed Abraham and he said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You notice that what Melchizedek offers him is, first and foremost, wine and bread. Okay? In all likelihood, what he was offering there was sustenance. They had just left home. They were probably a hundred miles from home. They were probably exhausted. And he brings them sustenance to sustain them. Okay? He sees their need and offers them what they need. I don't think we can miss the illusion here. What does he offer? Bread and wine. Click, click. Something go off in your head. Okay? There's an illusion there. But he offers him ultimately, probably the greatest thing that he does is he offers him a blessing from the Lord. He pronounces the Lord's blessing on Abram as well as blessing God for delivering Abraham's enemies into his hand. This was an essentially a confirmation and a reminder of the Lord's kindness, favor, and promises to Abraham. That's what Melchizedek offers him, is the blessings of God, the promises of God. In contrast, what does the king of Sodom offer him? Go down into verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. 
Ultimately, what the king of Sodom offered Abram was worldly spoils. Now, what's interesting is that because Abram had wiped out these enemies and had recaptured the possessions and the people and everything else by the rules of law, by the rules of war, he could have taken all of it. All belongs to him. That's, that was the rules. But, see, the king of Sodom wasn't going to let him get away with that. He tries to negotiate something. He essentially says, well, tell you what. Um, you take the plunder. Give me all the people. Which likely probably would have included Lot and Lot's wives and possessions and everything else. And so he tries to broker this deal, but all he can offer Abram is worldly spoils. That's it. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? The Lord's blessing versus worldly spoils. This is now where we see the third contrast, and it's in how Abram responded to each one of those offers. Abram responded to King Melchizedek by giving him a tenth. So what Abram did was he took of those spoils that he had right there, which ultimately he's just going to let King Sodom take, but he takes a tenth of that, and he gives it to Melchizedek. Why would he do that? Hebrews chapter 7 verse 4 tells us that Abram gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek because of Melchizedek's greatness as a priest of God. It was ultimately Abraham's way of recognizing not just Melchizedek, Melchizedek, but God's work behind him. It was an act of worship. You hear that all the time when we tell people, you know, we give not because there's some law that says we have to take off 10% of gross versus net and get into all those arguments. I'm not, I don't preach a tithe because I don't believe that a tithe is biblical. The Old Testament taught they were, to, they were to give a tenth of everything and they did it three times a year. You do the math on that and you're probably at 28%. Okay? In the New Testament, there's all the principle of giving from your heart based on what God has done for you. Sometimes that is extremely sacrificial. Sometimes it's not. The New Testament teaches giving on need. Okay? You give where you see need. Which means if you've already given your tenth to the Lord and you see need somewhere else, it doesn't mean you go, nope, I'm off the hook. Not necessarily. And so the giving principle in the New Testament is very different than the Old Testament. So we don't preach that. That's partly why we don't pass a plate. We don't want anybody to feel obligated to give. You can put it in the box in the back if you want to. And God blesses us tremendously with that. As opposed to what Davis shared about a church he went to where they passed the plate five times, continued to, pray, continued to play the music until people gave enough, and the pastor continued to preach. You're not giving enough! Pass the plate again! You know? I'll get off my high horse there. My point is that what Abram did was he worshipped the Lord. He recognized the Lord's work here. That's what he did. That was his response to Melchizedek's offer was to worship the Lord. But what was his response then to the king of Sodom? It's very different. He could have said, eh, sure. I'll take the possessions. You can take the people. Ah, that's a good deal, you know. Look at verses 22 through 23. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, which is that's an interesting statement. You know, I swore to God most high, possessor of it. He owns everything. Okay? I don't need your spoils. I have a relationship with the Lord who owns it all. But I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you will say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and a share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. So basically what he does here is he looks at King of Sodom and says, uh-uh. I'm not going to take your worldly spoils. I'm not going to take what you have to offer here. I'll only take what my men have already eaten, 
And these guys that came with me, give them their portion. I don't want the rest. Take it away. And so what we basically have from Adam or from Abram here is he takes the Lord's blessings over the worldly spoils. He was more interested in that than he was becoming rich. And again, he had the right. But he didn't want the king of Sodom to basically take credit. Part of Abram's wealth came from me. So what's our takeaway? I think like Abram, our goal as individual Christians and as a church in general should always be to seek the Lord's blessings over worldly spoils. Now that may sound like a simple thing. Whoops. But Abraham had no interest in being enriched with the spoils of the world. He was willing to take the Lord's blessings and he was blessed financially. He had a lot of prosperity. But it was all the result of the Lord simply blessing him and giving to him. He was content with receiving the Lord's blessings and waiting on God's promises. Now you have to think about this for a second. Most of the promises made to Abram he didn't receive in his lifetime. They would come to his descendants. Why not take a little bit right now and be comfortable? Why not build my way? Think about what Solomon did. All the victories that God gave Solomon, and what did Solomon do with it? He continued to build wealth and ultimately focused on the wealth. And ultimately the text tells us he had forsaken God. So he took the victories that God had given him and used it for his own benefit, his own pleasure, building his own kingdom. So he took the world's spoils and sacrificed the Lord's blessings. How tragic is that? So my question for us this morning is, are we more interested in receiving God's blessings and promises, even if they're not necessarily here in this earthly life? Are we more interested in that, or are we more interested in the worldly spoils? Many American Christians, I think, prefer the world's spoils. As much faith and credit as we can place in so many of the surveys and studies that have been done by Pew Research or Arizona Christian University, it seems like so many Christians today are much more interested in the worldly spoils. In fact, one of the fastest growing um, influences within the evangelical church in America is the NAR stuff that I've talked about, which places a tremendous amount of emphasis on um, receiving God's blessings here and now, victory in everything here and now, wealth here and now, prosperity here and now. We want to be comfortable. We don't want to sacrifice. We don't want to suffer. We want the world's spoils. Many American pastors and churches have also fallen into the trap of thinking that such things are evidence of God's blessing and satisfaction with what they're doing. They think that higher attendance or bigger buildings or multi-campus ministries, large social media followings, book publishings, traveling around the nation, are all evidence that they're doing God's work. But are they? I routinely am dismayed by what we see happening with so many of the Christian leaders in the United States here. There was another one from Dayton just this last week that resigned from his church. A friend of mine goes to that church. Um, it's, it's worldly spoils. You know, um, so many times we're, we're seeking the Lord's blessings and, and victories and things, and it's really for our own benefit and purpose. And Abram wasn't like that. So the question again is, what are we really interested in? Um, I've been reading, and I've mentioned this over and over again. You guys are probably tired to be talking about it, but I just finished reading um, a book that talks about um, politics in the evangelical church. And I have to agree because I saw it back in the 80s, and it continues. I've, I've told people for years that I think two things that just hugely negatively impacted the American church was because back in the 80s, much of the thinking began to be that we could become a political powerhouse as an evangelical church and we could redeem culture and society through politics. 
That was one thing. The second thing was a seeker-sensitive movement. We can reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ by becoming like them. Willow Creek is a good example of that. And those two things have destroyed the American church because it put our focus on earthly, worldly things. I'm going to call them worldly spoils. I was watching a video not too long ago from a very large multi-campus church. And this is not a condemnation of multi-campus churches. Kimberly was down at one in Kentucky, three churches. Phenomenal church. So I'm not denigrating those. But oftentimes what we see in churches today is our success is building a bigger, better business. That's how we're going to reach the world. And, and so we look within that oftentimes and we see all of these influences and what it ends up being is just worldly possessions, bigger buildings, fancier websites. And you know we think we're doing God's business because we can pack the churches and yet 8 out of 10 of those people when they walk out the door know very little about the Bible. We're not making disciples. But it looks like a successful business, does it not? But we're not making disciples. And so... When I think about us as a church, and I mean the American church, um, one of the things that's, that's kind of stood out to me with this book, I don't agree with everything in it, is so much of the focus is on our political influence and might. And we have to be very careful with that, that in, instead we ought to be, make sure that we pursue those victories here, whether they're political victories or other victories, we should pursue trying to influence our culture and society in any way that we can. And that means we should be involved. But we have to be very careful and not just accept the victories that come with that that make us powerful or strong as an evangelical body and instead be thinking, but what are we really doing to accomplish God's plan and God's purpose? Because so many times, and this is what's happened in the evangelical church, I saw it from back in the 80s that we get these great political victories, but that's where it ends. We receive the worldly spoils of that, power and influence, but really is that what it's about? No. So I think about, you know, this um, things that we've seen recently with these states that have passed laws to, to um, curb abortion. I look at some of those things and I say, oh, that's fantastic. But now what do we do as a church after that? Do we stop there? Or do we now make sure that we're caring for these people afterwards? A lot of them are. A lot of places are. And I think that's what we ought to be doing. So I guess I'm walking a fine line here because I don't want to imply that we shouldn't be involved or do things. And I don't want, want to make that what this is about. I think it's just a good example that oftentimes, as Christians, we like taking these victories and the worldly spoils maybe that come with it. How many pastors who have built big ministries and are living large, making money, living in literally mansions. They've taken the worldly spoils and then next thing we find out they're having affairs or they're doing other things. Abram was afraid of that, I think. He was afraid to take those worldly spoils. He didn't want that to replace God's blessings. And so what we ought to be doing is seek the victory, knowing that the Lord will give us victory to circumvent the plans of the enemy, but then be very careful when we receive those victories that we only pursue God's blessings. Not the worldly spoils that sometimes come with that. And they do. Oftentimes, with the things that we do as Christians, there are earthly benefits and blessings. We just have to be careful that that's not ultimately the end goal. Amen to that?